Please open your Bible to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. The people of God are a people who are called to look ahead. We are called to have our eyes fixed on a future day. And we fix our eyes on this future because we know what's coming. We know what is to come. And the reason we know it is because Jesus says it. So that means that we are then a people of the Word. We give our attention to what God has said. We are creatures of the Word. We're brought into being, created by the Word of God, and we hold to God's Word. Here's, here's some good news in this. God is a God who is unchanging. He's eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He's a God who purposes to speak to His people. Our God is a God who speaks. In His words, He shows us who He is. He teaches us about His kingdom, and He calls us to walk in the light of His light. And this is important for us today, to be reminded of today, because we are people who too often have thoughts of God that are too small. We have expectations of God that are too limited. We have hopes for His kingdom that are too fragile. We can say we believe certain things about God, We can say we trust God and want to follow Him. But when trials come, we doubt His goodness. When we face suffering, we can begin to question His power. When things don't go how we expect or want or hope, we can have a tendency, we might not articulate it, but we might be thinking it, that we're suspicious of whether God really is who He says He is. But thanks be to God, He is who He says He is. More than that, who he says he is is so much better than we often imagine him to be. Now this morning we're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of Matthew and specifically in chapter 13. This chapter contains this series of parables where Jesus is teaching his listeners about the kingdom, about his kingdom. And this week we're turning to three parables which tell us about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus tells these parables because he wants his disciples, he wants us to know that he really is who he says he is. And he will really do the things he says he's come to do. He will finish the work that he has begun. So may God give us eyes to see and ears to hear him by his Spirit. May he help us in our doubts and unbelief. Amen. Now through our time together, we're going to be considering these three parables of Jesus. The parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. And as we make our way through our text, we're going to reflect on three aspects of of this surprising and unexpected kingdom. So first, we're going to consider the opposition to the kingdom. The opposition to the kingdom. Look with me, beginning at Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 24. Matthew writes this, he says, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And Jesus tells another parable to the people here. The people he's talking to, they're well acquainted with farming and planting, with growing and waiting and harvesting. So it's to these categories that Jesus returns. And he tells this story of a man who plants wheat in a field. And all seems very normal at the beginning of the story. Then we come to verse 25. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. 
Now, the story takes this drastic turn for the worst. It's this case of like bioterrorism. The man's enemy attempts to destroy the crop of wheat by planting weeds in the field. Now, this wasn't unheard of at the time, but it was bad news. So it says in verse 26, So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Now, the, the weed that was planted in this field, in the story that Jesus, Jesus is telling, is a weed that looked just like wheat as it grew. It was hard to distinguish between the two. It wasn't until the plants grew and sprouted heads of grain that you could tell the difference between the wheat and the weeds. Now, it's not until this point that the man's servants notice the weeds. And they know this man. They know that he is a, he's a good man, and he's not careless in his planting. He only sows good seed. And they come to him asking, how does this field have weeds? Verse 27, And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. I find it surprising how this man responds. He doesn't go searching for an answer. He knows right away where his problem comes from. He doesn't go look for his receipt so he can go back to the store and be like, what did you sell me? He knows right away. An enemy has done this. So Matthew goes on, or Jesus goes on. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? In verse 29, the master says, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Now, the servants, they, they want to make it right. This is their responsibility to care for this field. So they offer to go up, go, and, go out and pull up all the weeds. But the man says, uh-uh, no. The reason he says no is because he cares more about his wheat than he does about having a weed-free field. He doesn't want any of his wheat to be damaged. So for the protection of the wheat, he says, no, don't pull them up yet. This, this weed would grow and, and intertwine itself in the roots of the wheat. That's, that's how it worked. And so he doesn't want any of the wheat to be damaged. So the master says in verse 30, Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now the weed that the enemy was planted, it was this, this nasty stuff that, that was set on destroying the wheat, if they were pulled up together. Now, if the servants went through the field pulling up the wheat, much of the wheat would be lost. So the man tells his servants to wait. Wait until harvest time, and then gather the weeds, and we will bind them up and burn them. And then the wheat can be gathered and stored. Now, this is the story that the people heard, and Jesus says that this is what the kingdom of heaven may be compared with. But what does this story teach us about the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to come back to this story again a little bit later in our time this morning, but at this point, there's something that we can say about the kingdom of heaven, just right off the bat. And Jesus' initial point is simply this. The kingdom of heaven will be opposed. The kingdom of heaven will be opposed. And this is surprising and unexpected. The Jewish people, they've been, they've been looking for and longing for the coming of God's kingdom. But they did not expect it to face much opposition. God's kingdom would come in its glory and it would, it would overcome all other things. It would conquer. They especially didn't expect that they might be the ones that would bring opposition to this kingdom. So there was no way 
that Jesus could really be inaugurating God's kingdom. Was there? But Jesus tells this story and says, the kingdom of heaven is going to be opposed. The enemy is going to come up against it, but these efforts will be destroyed. The story ends with the wheat being harvested and brought into the master's barn, weed-free. But what does this mean for Jesus' followers? What does it mean for us? I think we need to recognize that until the harvest, the master allows weeds to exist alongside the wheat. To strip away the metaphor, here Jesus teaches that God allows that which is evil to exist alongside that which is good. And I think we would do well to apply this in two ways. On the one hand, like Jesus teaches his disciples, we should not be surprised when the people of God face opposition. We shouldn't question God when the cause of the gospel seems vilified or when Christians are persecuted or when we are viewed by our culture as backward bigots. We shouldn't be surprised. God's enemy is working to undermine God's kingdom. This is what Jesus is saying right now, right there. And even though this may be a surprise to us, this is not a surprise to God. So we should be those who do not fear when we see morality crumble around us in our culture. We should not fear if it seems the world is against God's people. Jesus said he will build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Even though there's an enemy opposing God's work, God will win. So do not fear. Now, on the other hand, I think it's important for us to recognize this. God intends for his people, for his wheat in this case, to live and grow alongside evil. Did you notice this as we worked our way through this parable? God doesn't separate them until the harvest. There's a sense in which this this parable is teaching us to be in the world, but not of the world. So we should be those who are present in our neighborhoods and our communities. This might mean that as Christians we get involved in local politics or in school boards or in corporate leadership. We are to be those who shine as lights in a dark world as we look to Jesus. But our hope is not in any of these earthly contexts or the change we might affect. It's in the power of God to bring salvation to the lost. So God's call to us is not one of withdrawal in the face of evil, but of existence alongside the weeds. And the reason this is the case is to... God wants to protect his people. God wants his people to grow, and he knows that this is the best context for their growth. Growing alongside the weeds is the best context for a Christian's growth. We we are those, I think the primary reason this is the case, is we are those who are called to be constantly dependent on God. Constantly looking to him, not putting our confidence in what we are able to do, what we are able to build, what we are able to accomplish, but constantly acknowledging, God, we need you. God, we look to you. And that's one of the things that we seek to do as we gather week after week. We come as dependent people. I think I've shared this before, but I love how uh, John Calvin, when he did his liturgy in the various cities that he, in Geneva and Strasbourg, he started his liturgy, his time of corporate worship with Psalm 124 verse 8, which simply says this, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So we, we come with this acknowledgement. We have no hope, but in the one who made heaven and earth, our help is wholly wrapped up in him. So we are to be dependent people.
But like Jesus' disciples, we might be far more aware of our insignificance, of our inability to have any real effect on others. And it's here that Jesus tells another parable about his surprising unexpected kingdom. So this moves us to our second point. We talked about the opposition of the kingdom. Next, we're going to look at the small beginnings of the kingdom. The small beginnings of the kingdom. Jesus goes into another parable. Look first at verses 31 and 32. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. We've got another guy planting something in a field. He takes a mustard seed, plants it in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now here Jesus presents this very simple picture. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like this this mustard seed. And we see Jesus describes the mustard seed as the smallest of all seeds. This is just an idiom. He's not saying that it's literally the smallest seed known to man. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus' point is that it's really small. It's like saying a runner is as fast as lightning. The runner is not literally as fast as lightning, but he is very fast. Jesus contrasts the small size of this seed with the large size of this plant. This tiny seed grows unexpectedly large. Now the next parable Jesus tells makes a similar point. And some commentators describe these two parables as twin parables. They're not identical twins, but twins nonetheless. They are the the Calen and Brenna of Jesus' parables, if you will. Now look at verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. That's it. That's the parable. Leaven is fermenting dough. It's a piece of last week dough that has been kept back for future use. Some translations just say it was yeast, but that's not quite right. It's more like the sourdough starter, if you will. You take a little bit of it and you fold it in your dough, and that little bit works its way into and throughout the rest of the dough. Now, we're not exactly how much three measures of flour is, other than to say it was a whole lot of flour. It was estimated, this is what kind of commentators say, I saw anywhere from like 50, it would feed enough bread, enough bread to feed about 50 to like 200 people. It's a lot of bread, a lot of flour. But all the woman needs to leaven her dough in order to bake this bread is just a little bit of leaven. And that's what she saved from last week's bread. So what do these two parables teach us about the kingdom of heaven? They teach us about its small beginnings. The small beginnings of the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to take a moment and I want to just back up and get a bird's eye view of, of the context of this narrative. About what God is doing in the, in the grand story of redemption. So we're like going to back way, way, way up as we consider this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Last week I described the kingdom of heaven as the, the realm of God's rule and reign. It's the place of God's glory. One theologian simply describes God's kingdom as God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And the whole Bible is really one long story about God establishing his kingdom. So from the Garden of Eden 
In Genesis to the book of Revelation, we see God creating and calling out a people to live in His place under His rule. In Genesis, God makes this covenant with Abraham and He promises to to make him a great nation and give him a land to dwell in. God's people in God's place. In Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua, we see God deliver His people out of Egypt giving them rules to live by, a way to be in relationship with him, all for the purpose of bringing them into the promised land where they will live as his people. God's people in God's land under God's rule. Then we get to Samuel and to Kings, and we see the seeming climax of what God is building in David and then his son Solomon. And God promises David in in Samuel 7 that he will establish his kingdom forever. But by the time we get into First and Second Kings, the kingdom divides and just falls into disarray. The people are oppressed and eventually they're exiled. And they are living not in this place that God had promised. But then God raises up prophets. And so we read in the Old Testament of these, these prophets who point forward to a future day where God's promises will be fulfilled. Where God's kingdom will finally be put on full display. And this is what the Jewish people hoped for. This is what they longed for, what they looked for. They had no doubt that it would come. They had no doubt that it would be great. They had their eyes looking for God's promised kingdom, for David's son to occupy his throne forever, for their enemies to be conquered, for them to have power and peace and rest as they lived, as God's people in God's place under God's rule. The prophet Ezekiel even tells of this coming day when the Lord will plant a great tree. In this case, it's a cedar tree. Ezekiel 17, 23 and 24, the Lord says this, On the mountain height of Israel will I plant this tree, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, every, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. The people of Israel, they knew this promise. They were looking for this promise to be fulfilled. But what Ezekiel says there should sound a little familiar to us and what we just read in Matthew 13. So the people of Israel, they're, they're waiting. They're waiting for this day to come. Waiting and waiting and waiting. Looking and hoping. And then a man shows up. Preaching in the wilderness. Declaring, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this man, John the Baptist, he's declaring that what you've been waiting for is finally here. But John is rejected. And then arrested. And then Jesus comes declaring this same truth. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But most don't believe it. They don't believe that this carpenter's son from the despised town of Nazareth could be the one to inaugurate the glorious kingdom of heaven. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Couldn't be. Couldn't be through this man. This man surrounded by this band of misfits from the fringes of society. This could not be the anointed one. It was foolishness to think so. But the seeming, seemingly small beginnings of Jesus' ministry, 
Indeed, it will grow into something incomparably great. What is seen in him, just like the mustard seed, it will provide refuge for people from every nation. What he does in his life and death and resurrection, like the leaven, will have influence and impact on all things. In fact, he's still having that impact today. This lowly, despised carpenter's son from Nazareth. We're here this morning because he lived 2,000 years ago. There's no, no other reason we would gather together apart from him. What seemed so small, so insignificant, like the mustard seed being planted in the field, still has an effect today. And what a word of encouragement these stories must have been for the disciples. They've given up all to follow Jesus, yet as they learn from him, as he teaches, they're, they're mocked, they're ridiculed, they're rejected. But Jesus is saying, don't worry about that. This is my plan. This is how I purpose to plant this tree, to establish my kingdom. Right now it's just this tiny seed, but it will grow into the largest plant in the garden. It will be the leaven that influences the world. Jesus is teaching that what we long for in the end, that, that vision that we have looking ahead, our hope for eternity, he's saying it's already present in the beginning. It's here now. There's this continuity between what Jesus began and where we are now. All that we need is found in him. Indeed, all we have, all we need, all we want is in him. Matthew then fills out the picture of what Jesus is doing. Look at verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now Matthew provides what can seem like this little interlude in Jesus' parables. And he adds these verses to make the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of what has been foretold. This is what everything has been moving towards. Now Matthew is not saying that Jesus taught only in parables, but this is primarily how he spoke to the people. And he quotes from Psalm 78, verse 2. Psalm 78, verse 2 is a psalm of Asaph, and the psalm describes these significant events and moments in the history of the people of Israel. And Asaph, he, he puts them together in this narrative in order to show God's purposes as he shows his steadfast love in spite of a people's consistent rebellion. When the people of Israel lived through these events, they didn't understand them. They could not see God's purposes. They were riddles. They were things hidden. But Asaph in Psalm 78 is showing what they've been all about. He is opening up his mouth in parables. That's what Asaph is doing, Psalm 78, verse 2. Only something more is even going on. Matthew shows us that this verse is really pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus, the one who is revealing those things hidden as he speaks. Remember how parables are, are things that reveal truth. And so Jesus speaks in parables, revealing how, how God is at work in bringing his kingdom to fulfillment. 
So Jesus has shown us the opposition, of the opposition to the kingdom of heaven. He's shown us the, the small beginnings of this kingdom. And finally, we come to the hope of the kingdom. Number three, the hope of the kingdom. Now here we come back to the parable of the weeds. Now Matthew uses verses, verse 36 to change the scene of the events. The house that Jesus left in verse 1 of chapter 13, he comes back to here in verse 36. And once inside, the disciples ask for an explanation. They don't understand this story, but they want to know. So they ask. They don't understand the story, but they want to know, so they ask. May we be the same. When we encounter things in God's Word that we don't understand, may we ask for the Spirit's help. Look with me, beginning in verse 36. I'm going to read to verse 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So Jesus begins with this this list of seven things that the parable is referring to. Verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now Jesus begins this explanation. He lists out these seven things. But then notice how Jesus, in this explanation, he skips the whole story. And he goes right to the end. He skips over the questions of the servants. He skips the growing of the weeds alongside the wheat. He goes right to the end. Remember where Jesus ended in verse 30? The master says, At harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is where Jesus goes, and this is what Jesus wants to explain to the disciples. He says that just like a coming harvest where these weeds will be burned, so it will be for the sons of the evil one. Jesus Jesus is saying judgment is coming. Notice at the beginning of verse 41 that it is Jesus, the Son of Man, who will be in the place of authority in judgment. He's the one who has the supreme place at this harvest time. He is the one who sits on the throne of judgment and casts out the evil from his kingdom. So great is his power and authority that he has given. Verses 41 and 42, they go on to describe this harrowing scene where the evil ones will be cast into the fiery furnace, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think it's important for us to just stop briefly there because we live in a culture that wants to minimize this idea. If it speaks of hell at all, it wants to speak of it, speak of it as a place of sinful delights not a place of endless sorrow. But this is how Jesus speaks about hell. It's a place of sheer dread, of complete despair, of constant unhappiness. There's no joy here. No delight here. No hope here. And so these words are meant to be a warning to all who hear. A warning to turn from evil and turn to God's kingdom. 
And brothers and sisters, what a hope there is for the sons of the kingdom. Did you see what will be gathered out of God's kingdom? Look at the end of verse 41 again. It says the angels will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. In the kingdom of heaven, the place of of God's people living under God's good rule in God's place, there will be no lawbreakers. There will be no transgression. There will be no sin. There will be no one who is selfish insisting on their own way. No one who is proud insisting that they're right. No one will be wise in their own eyes. No one will be unkind to someone else. There will be no injustice, no abuse, no domineering, no slander. There will be no malice or envy, no immorality or deceit. Can you imagine this kingdom? This is what the children of God look forward to. It will be a kingdom of peace, of kindness, of talk that builds others up. A kingdom of humility and patience and love and gratefulness and joy. Oh, a joy. But Jesus doesn't just say that his kingdom will be free from all lawbreakers, which is wonderful. It also says there will be a place free from all causes of sin. All causes of sin. Think about how comprehensive that statement, of, that statement is. All causes of sin will be removed from his kingdom. This speaks to the removal of sinful hearts that crave to be in control, that are always ready to make a mess of our lives and the lives of those around us. This speaks to the removal of the various temptations that we face, that which entices us and pleads with us to go astray, to look at what is forbidden or to long for what isn't ours. This speaks to the removal of the evil one himself, the one who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He will be removed. All causes of sin will be removed. This speaks of the complete removal of every ailment, every sickness, every heartache, every suffering, even death itself. All of it will be no more. All causes of sin will be removed. In the 18th 18th century, a hymn writer put it this way. He said, no chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow and pain and death are felt and feared no more. All causes of sin will be removed. This is the day that is coming. This is where the sons of the kingdom are headed. The children of God are headed. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. A place where all causes of sin and all lawbreakers have been removed. But that is not all. Jesus explains to his disciples that on that day, verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun. And what does that mean for the righteous to shine like the sun? We can think of Moses, who when he spoke to God with a face, his face shone so bright that he had to wear a veil to talk to the people. Fast forward several hundred years and we come to the prophet Daniel. And in Daniel 12, he's given a vision of the end of time when the people of God shall be delivered. This is think God's kingdom. It's happening, being fulfilled completely. And Daniel 12, 3 says this, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
So who will shine like the stars forever and ever? Who will, who will get this glorious light? Only the wise. Only the righteous. But what about us? How do we, as sinful people, as fallible people, as finite people, get in on that? How can we be counted righteous? How can we see and understand and shine? Only through Jesus Christ. Only through the Spirit-worked faith in Christ's work on our behalf. Even though His coming seems so insignificant to this world. Even though it's actively opposed by the evil one. Even though Jesus was despised and rejected by the very people He came to deliver. Even though the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To us who are being saved. Brothers and sisters, it is the power of God. And now by the Spirit through faith, those who once were far off are able to behold with unveiled face the glory of the Lord. Those who trust in Him become sons of the kingdom with God as their Father. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. These parables uh, of the weeds and the mustard seed and the leaven They're meant to point us forward to the hope of this coming day when Christ, who is our life, will appear. Then we also will appear with Him in glory. Brothers and sisters, we have a great hope in the kingdom of heaven. And although now we only see in part, it may seem like small beginnings, all that we need is already present in Jesus. And one day we will see in full. Though we walk as those who wander, Though we are tempted to doubt the goodness and power of God, He is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the one who surely will complete the work that He began. The kingdom of heaven has dawned in the coming of Jesus. So let us look to Him, because what a hope we have in Him. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for revealing Yourself to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that in Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, your kingdom has, has broken into this world in its power and glory and splendor. And thank you that by your spirit, it didn't just stay in the Middle East in 2,000 years ago, but it has spread throughout the world. And it has spread to us, those who have put their trust in you. Lord, help us to look to you and to trust in you and to live in light of the day that is coming when, when all of our waiting will be over. And we will see you face to face. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.